Jorge, I was going to ask you to open for us in prayer tonight. Yes, sir. I'm sorry? You want to show the Lord now? Yes, that would be great. Getting ready to start now. So, Jorge was going to lead us in prayer. All right. We give you honor and glory to you, Lord. Thank you for the salvation that you got. Gives to your son, Yeshua. Thank you for allowing us to be together tonight. And we ask you, Lord, that you speak through our brother, Michael. Uh, we ask you that it is your Ruach, Kodesh, the one that see our hearts and give us discernment and to live according to what we heard today, what we have heard from, from our from Rabbi Han. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, um, just a couple notes to let you know what's going on. This week, these are kind of like housekeeping notes. This will be the last study for a while in Matthew, we will be offering our summer vision slash membership class. And so I'll be teaching that. But during that time, we'll also have a class for Joshua, which I believe we'll have for five out of the six weeks. No, we'll have six weeks with, I'm one, with one week in between skipping. Okay. August 5th, she won't have class. That's all. Okay. So we'll have... Five weeks, but six-week class, but one of those weeks there will be no classes. Do we need to sign up for that? Was it, I don't know that we need to sign up. No, I don't think we that's... Sign up for the membership class. You sign up for the membership class? But not for the uh, other one. I didn't see sign up. Yeah, we haven't had a sign up. We were just trying to figure out which group was biggest, and that would... The biggest group would meet in here, and the other group would meet in Mount Albert, which is also a big room with a huge... Uh, marker board. So either classroom is great. Anyway, so I wanted to let everyone know, and, and then I'm assuming afterwards, on the other side of August, we may resume and complete the last three chapters of Matthew. Um, by the grace of God. By the grace of God. <laughs> I know we may take a break depending on when um, fall feasts fall, in a sense, or when they kind of happen. Um, it wasn't meant to be a double entendre, a fall, feast fall. Um, so we're in Matthew 25 tonight. And if you don't remember, we um, kind of jumped around because of the end of chapter 24 and the parable of the ten talents going together with the um, information on the servants. And so tonight we're going to look at Matthew 25, the bookends portions, uh, verses 1 through 13. And then we're going to jump and go from 31 to 46, the second half. And Aaron, would you be willing to read? Okay, here we go. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. 
Five of them were foolish, and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. And then we go to... 31, and the end of the chapter. Okay, here we go. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right, and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, And you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did you when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison, and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also answered, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Thank you. 
So, <clears throat> we've been talking about, tonight's uh, teaching I'm calling the stories of judgment because each of these two stories has a uh, common denomina- denominator of judgment coming forth in both sides of the stories. And we've been discussing the parables in the this session and a little bit in the last session and in the session a little bit before. Um, and I wanted to just quickly review the parables. The first parable we talked about was the parable of the fig tree. And this was in Matthew uh, 24. Do you remember what we said about the parable of the fig tree? It says, you will know the times just as the fig tree, just as the fig tree shows its leaves in summer, you know that summer is nigh. Remember, we talked about that? Yeah. And part of the understanding that we talked about with the fig tree was that it was a symbol of what we knew, of something we know. We know that summer's near. And we talked about, specifically, if you've ever seen a fig tree, the leaves are completely huge. They're very big, big leaves. They're very beautiful. And actually, if you think about it, it might have been a fig that Adam and Eve may have eaten because it said they sewed fig leaves together. They're very enormous leaves than other trees. And we also talked about that that's one meaning is because the fig tree is very obvious when it's ready to start its, its season for fruit. And the other thing we talked about that's, that Israel is also referred to as the fig tree. And in that way... Israel being a nation was an important part of that. And we specifically address that from the context where it says, this generation will not pass away. And we talked about that word generation, Genema, uh, if I'm saying that right. Genea. For some reason I'm thinking there's an M in there. Genea, which has to do with more than just generation. It can be translated people or family. And we talked about how this parable was not just talking about how that you would know a time or a season, but the fact that the Jewish people existing and being very fruitful and knowing them in their land right now, that was a part of a sign that we know this is the time of the end. And so that was one of the first parables we talked about. And then the other three parables we talked about, many of them had similar themes because we talked about the servants. They each had a servant in the context. We had the parable of the talents. We had the parable of the, the wise servant and the foolish servant. And then we had the parable of the doorkeeper. And a question was brought up about the parable of the doorkeeper because there's a, there's an, uh, a comment that was made about how did the priest fit in with the doorkeeper. And we talked about how the doorkeeper watched over And he was watching for a thief that would come. A thief in the night. And we talked about the fact that in throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, this idea of the thief in the night is is expounded on more than once. We see it expounded on by Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We see it uh, brought out by Peter in 2 Peter. And twice in Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. And then we talked about specifically Revelation 16, 15. 
And do you remember what we said about that one? Because there was a blessing that went with that one. It says, Behold, I come as a thief in the night. And blessed is he who does not lose his clothes and become naked. Do you remember what we talked about that? What that was about? Does anyone remember? The priest that was uh, watching over the offering, or the, the fire in the Yes, the priest that was watching over the fire. And what, what was it about the fire? What was the importance of the fire? It could not go out. The fire had to constantly burn on the altar. And sometimes, even through the whole night. So sometimes, and this is, I found this from David Stern's commentary, if anyone wants to see it. It's actually quoted in the Talmud. And so what, what would happen is it said the high priest would leave for the night and shut up the temple. And there was one priest that was left on duty. He was to make sure that the fire didn't go out. And sometimes that, that priest would come back in the middle of the night to see if, if the priest had fallen asleep on the job. Or to see if, and that they would take the priest, if the guy had fallen asleep and the fire had gone out, he would take some of the embers and set his clothes on fire so that the guy would leave the temple running, naked and having no clothes on. And that's kind of what that was referring to, how the thief comes in the middle of the night when an hour you don't expect him. And so this is a very Jewish concept of the thief in the night that we were talking about. Then we talked about the faithful servants, and there's a lot we could go over. But we, there were two scenarios of those that were wise and those that were foolish. And we had quite a bit that we said, and it's also in your notes tonight. But basically the foolish servants versus the wise, wise servants in both parables. And one, and we talked about the first parable in Matthew 24, how... The, there's two scenarios kind of given. And this is a unique par parable because Yeshua in his parables, Yeshua's a master parable teacher, and at times he never gave two scenarios in his parables. But in this one he says, what if the servant was like this and he would be blessed? And then in the second scenario, he said the servant was foolish. And he began to eat and drink and he began to beat the servants. And he, he became an essential... The person who was left in charge was worse, was a bad person. He, he kind of becomes a bad person. So we had how two different kinds of servants were talked about. But we said what happened to that servant. What happened to the servant that was unjust? He was cut in two. He was cut in two and given his place outside where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, a, a, a direct comment toward Gehenna or hell. And so from there, we went to the final parable of the parable of the talents. And there was a lot we drew out from that. But specifically the concept of if you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in what? And <clears throat> we saw that the third person who was given the one talent, who had hidden it in the earth, what did he say about his master? Does anyone remember what he said? He was harsh. He was a hard man. And we talked about the Greek word, how it's someone who's cruel or harsh. And he even goes on to really say some terrible things about the master. You harvest where you don't even sow. Almost saying, you don't have a part in anything that's going on here. We talked about how 
really what this parable was talking about in the talents, it, and we talked about how we shared this in the membership class also. What this parable is really talking about is how we both give and what? Receive. Yes. Receive. <clears throat> well done. Give and receive. How do we give and receive? That's really what this parable is about. Either we, in turn, as we've been given, learn to give. Because even though this parable is talking about money, it can apply to so many more other things. And we talked about atonement, forgiveness. Just being thankful, you know? And how we receive, ultimately, is how we sometimes give. If we feel that the Lord has blessed us in what we've received from Him, hopefully we'll turn around and give the same way. Or are we going to be like the wicked servant who, even though he had been forgiven, or even though he's given what he's given, a talent, but yet he doesn't choose to do anything with it. And I, I talked about how you can apply that to just forgiveness. You might be showing quite a bit of forgiveness from the Lord, but then in turn, maybe you're not ready to show the same amount of forgiveness to your brother. Or you might be thankful of what the Lord gives you, and in turn, you look to bless other people because you've been blessed. And we talked about how that's, this parable is ultimately about how we learn to give and receive. And we talked about the master's joy. That was a big part of the parable. Come enter your master's joy. We're getting into some of that tonight as well. So tonight we get into first the parable of the ten virgins. And let me see here. Going to my notes. Okay. So as we get into the parable of the ten virgins tonight, the first thing that I wanted to talk about is this is a parable of the kingdom. Why is that important? Because that's exactly how it started out. It says... This is likened, on, or as Aaron read, comparable to the kingdom. Why is it so important to get a hold of the kingdom in this parable? Well, what is the kingdom? We need to review that. What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of heaven? Some people say there are two different things. Kingdom of God. It's the kingdom that's here on earth. Kingdom of heaven. Kingdom in heaven. Do we agree with that? Are the two kingdoms two separate things? One is Jewish, one is Gentile. Very good. But they are the one kingdom. When we say kingdom of heaven, Malchut Shemaim, we're saying it in a Jewish way. We're using the word heaven as a pseudonym. Like today when they say Hashem or Adonai. We don't say the God's name, but we say it in pseudonyms. It's the same idea, kingdom of heaven. Heaven meaning God. It's the same idea. It's a Greek way of saying it as opposed to a Hebrew way of saying it. But it is the same kingdom. doesn't change. Not two kingdoms. A lot of people believe it's two kingdoms. Okay? Just want to make sure. But what's the basic message of the kingdom? What's the basic... basic if I was to say, can you sum up the kingdom in two words? God rules. God rules. This is something basic. God rules in the kingdom. Now, a lot of times we don't get that because we're so, you know, we don't live under monarchy. We have our own way of doing things. You know, we even get that in the society. Have it your way. And all these other different, different 
different colloquialisms that we sometimes see in advertising, but it's, but it's really about God ruling. And if we don't have a basic sense of that, we sometimes miss that. We also see that part of God's kingdom is the picture of repentance. And I'm jumping down the list because repentance is an important part of the kingdom. Repentance always has to take place in order for us to come into God's kingdom. Where, can, where is that in Scripture? Anybody know? John 3. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Unless you go through, unless you, uh, I'm trying to remember John 3, 5 there, and it just went right out of my head. Um, but unless a man is born of the Spirit and of water, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is the whole idea of the kingdom. It's that God rules. It's a spiritual deal. So that's the first part I think that's really important. Now there's a lot of pictures here. We have three different groups of people. We have ten virgins, five wise, five foolish in the, in the parable. And we have the character of the bridegroom. Those are the main characters. Yes, there are other characters. But those are the three that we just want to focus on in this parable. Okay, And remember, we don't look at parables completely or allegoric. We can, but a lot of times you get off on perspectives because we just want to keep things simple and understand what the parable means for what it is. Just in the story. Because when we, when we sometimes get down the allegory path, allegories only can live up to their, to their picture for so long and then they start to break down. But it's important that we first just understand the parable for what it is, just the parable as it is. And so within here we have definitely some Jewish concepts, okay? We have especially Jewish concept of the Jewish wedding. In tradition, we have the bridesmaids and how the bridesmaids were to be ready, be ready to go in the impending days of the wedding, okay? They had to be in readiness to go because no one knew exactly the timing until the father told the son, go get the bride. And we also have the fact that Jewish weddings sometimes take place at night. We see that especially in the movie Fiddler on the Roof. The wedding took place at nighttime. So, in this context too, it's important that we understand, and, and this idea of the, the, no one knows the time, that's right where we find earlier in Matthew 24, where it says, you don't know the day or the hour, but only my Father in heaven, not even the angels know. Okay? Now, the next point that's important to make, does anyone know where this wedding is taking place? Where this whole parable might be taking place? Because <laughs> it's kind of a, I, I think it's an important thing to the parable. And I can't prove it from Scripture completely, but I get a good idea of what, where the specific place this parable is taking place is important. Because when we understand that piece of the parable, a lot of other things come to light about the parable that don't seem to make any sense. Well, I think the answer where it takes place, or when, because when and where are important, is during the harvest. I believe this is a harvest parable. Okay? And I think the when is important, the when is the harvest, and I believe the where is it's taking place in maybe a field or a vineyard. 
Okay? Now, I have some scriptures, and we don't have to go through them unless someone really feels that's what we need to do. But I think you can look in scripture, especially in the book of Judges, that people took brides during festivals, like we see in Judges 21. And we also see that people worked at night when they harvested, just like Boaz did in the book of Ruth. Okay? Those are, those are my points of saying part of the reason they did the harvest it, at night because it was cooler. It was cooler. And people would get their things together, maybe take a meal. They would work in the field, they would eat, and they would lie down and go to sleep right there in the field. And I think that's part of what's going on here. That's part of what we see going on in this, in this parable. Now, with every parable, there's a twist. Does anyone know what the twist of this parable is? Well, for me, it's they don't loan them the oil that they ask for. No, no. To me, that's not, that's not the twist because it already tells us at the beginning, five were wise and five were foolish, right? So I'm not really surprised that the foolish ones didn't bring any oil. That, that kind of seems right in their character. The twist is what? You're right, you're on the right track. The bridegroom is delayed. There was an expected time when the bridegroom was to come, right? There was some kind of expected time. And so when the bridegroom delays, what is ha- what happens? Everyone. Everyone sleeps. That's an interesting piece in the parable. An interesting piece. Now, it says when does the bridegroom, or when is the shout heard? At midnight. It's 12 o'clock at night. Very late. Dark. Now, I'm asking you to put your thinking cap on. If everyone's in a field... Do they usually harvest all on top of each other? No. They'd probably be scattered throughout the field, right? Because my first thinking is, if this isn't taking place in a bunch of houses, wouldn't you just see Karen's light or Katrina's light? And let's say, let's just follow their light. If you were one of the foolish ones, you could say, I'm going to follow Karen's light and just follow her to the bridegroom. Because she's got oil and I don't. But in a giant field of grain, can you follow someone's light very easily? Like if you're out in the mountains or out in the wilderness, can you see another light very easily? If there's like high grass and high, high corn or high grain, it's a little bit harder to see through a field, right? But Michael, they were somehow able, the five foolish ones were somehow able to contact the five smart ones. Well, they can call to each other, that's true. But does that not mean they can see each other? Maybe that's that could be, but I think I think not only is this happening in a field, but I think even there's they're going to a tent in the field for the wedding feast. Because notice they have to go and get oil, and I think what's happening is that requires them to actually leave the field to go get the oil, or maybe even to a certain part of the field. And so I'm I'm drawing this out. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think, as I was praying about this, this is what I think the Lord was showing me, is that this is taking place in a field, 
It's not as easy to move around in the field at night. It, I don't know if anyone's ever been in the mountains. It is kind of harder to see in the mountains at night, right? But then on another, on the other hand, on the other hand, if everything is really dark and there's a light, that light will just be there. I mean, true. In, it in it could in the mountains at night. Like if you look up, the stars are so amazing. You can see them so much easier. Could have been. Could have been cloudy that night. I don't know. I'm just suggesting maybe to you this is in a field. And that's, and that's what I believe is taking place. This is in a field. They're not on top of each other. They might be able to call to each other, but I don't think they can see each other's lights. I don't think they, it's very easy for them to navigate in and out of the field. And maybe back to a given point in the field to come to the feast. That's just my opinion. For whatever it's worth, the bottom line is they can't get to where the bridegroom is. Michael, as you often point out, um, the parable is limited in, in terms of how much you can squeeze out of it. That's true. That's well, true. Can I ask you a question? You you just did, but you can ask another one. <laughs> well, what I'm thinking about is, is this kind of like a an example of humanity? You know, it's kind of like saying, you know, when, when the Lord comes, some will be sleeping and some will be ready. And the, the last verse in all this talks about um, well, vigilance and, and being ready, yes. Yes, and, and so I'm just wondering if it isn't kind of like if, I mean, there's a lot of people who aren't ready. That's and true. If he comes back they're going to be yelling through the field or looking for the light you know, and, and trying to understand that or you know, trying to, to be in the grace of God or I think it may be even greater than that, though, because I think there's going... Because this is why I pose this a question about all these different things. When we get to almost the last verse, verse 11 or verse 12, notice this sounds a lot like Matthew 7, 23 and 24. Yeah. And what is... Now, is that something the Lord says to... Do you think the Lord says those words to believers? Um, he says them to everybody, I think. He does say it to everybody, but those are some harsh words. Therefore, stay alert for you know neither the day nor the hour. Verse 13, but back up verse 11 and 12. What does that say? Um, verse 11. Now later the other virgins came saying, Sir, sir, open up for us. But he replied, Amen, I tell you, I do not know you. Oh, I do not know you. That's somewhere else too. Yes, it is. Matthew 7. Does someone have it? Matthew 7. What does it say when he says that? I do not know you. Because this is a breakdown. Ultimately, it's a breakdown in relationship. For the Lord to tell someone, I don't know you. Matthew 7, 23 and 24. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine puts them into practice as like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And so part of this is talking, in, remember, going back to the parables of the kingdom, they always have to do with repentance, turning from sin and turning toward God. That's a big piece of this parable because some did not learn and ultimately, as believers, we're to live. The, the basic point of the application, we are to live as children of light. 
We are to live as God has called us to live. Because we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to look different as believers. As believers. Let's um, read one of these passages here. Let's read 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 5 through 11. This, I think, is a good application of the parable. We had 1 Thessalonians 5 several times in our text because it says earlier in it, Paul's saying at the the end of chapter 4, just to to, uh, paint the picture of context, we have the trumpet, the trumpet call of God and God returning and gathering those and that we're to comfort each other with these words that we'll know the times and the seasons, he tells us into chapter 5. And then what does he say in verses 5 through 11? Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for and the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Yeshua Messiah, who has who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. So what do you, what do you think that says to you, Sylvia? In basic terms, what do you think that's saying? Be ready. <laughs> be ready, be vigilant, act the way God has, has, has wanted you to act. As people... And basically what I think it comes down to is act like holy people. Act like holy people that have been redeemed. And encourage each other. And encourage each other. And build each other up. Why do you think that's why do you think I have that in there? Why is it in there? I I think because because things like because things can, life can be hard. Life can be hard, absolutely. Now a lot of people look, get a, a, onto this whole kick of the end times, the end times, because these parables are maybe or these stories are about the end times, and there's a definite point of that. But the fact is, in the right now, we need people that can be encouraged. People go through rough stages, and we have to be there to encourage them, to support them, whether it's supporting them financially or spiritually, or just coming over and say, hey, I'm glad that you came tonight. I'm glad that you're here with us to worship. Because that's just a basic thing that you can tell people that shows God's love to them, God's compassion for them, is learn to love on people. And I think life is hard. We all go through tough times, and we need that point where we need to be encouraged. We need that point of being encouraged. Michael? Yes. Um, when I was first about the Lord when I was taught by some missionaries and they had a concept which they called once saved or saved because they were trying to get away from what they believed was <clears throat> a wrong doctrine of where you could constantly be losing and gaining your salvation the problem with just that sort of simple statement about once saved or saved is that you got a lot of people who supposedly made a commitment and then they went on to live as ever before and said well once saved or saved I'm looking at the different parallels in the scripture, you know, like enter by the narrow gate, 
because broad is a way that leads to destruction. And this passage to me is very simple and it's trying to say, look, sorry, it's not sufficient to just say, uh, you know, well, I, 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 you know, I go to church or whatever, wherever you go, synagogue, whatever it is, so many times, and so that, that's good enough. He's, to me, he's trying to say, there's more to this than just some of that formality. You know, uh, there's a behavior of the heart and so forth that the Lord is expecting. And, and that's why it all comes back to the kingdom. That's why I started with the kingdom. The parable is first and foremost about the kingdom. And whenever you see the kingdom, you're talking about people that are entering God's kingdom. That's part of what's pictured in it. It's talking about people who are in a relationship with the Lord. It's talking about repentance as a lifestyle. It's not like we'd say, okay, we're going to repent at Yom Kippur, and that should be good enough for the year. And it's also talking about, don't you think, that we're not, this is, these are not just pie-in-the-sky ideas. This is how we are to be living with our fellow men. Absolutely. It, it seems like a lot of things in Scripture you have both and. Um, on one hand, you have the security uh, for us as believers because Yeshua says no one can snatch them out of my hands. On the other hand, there's enough in Scripture to make us nervous so, so that we don't we don't slide into this one saved, always saved, I can do whatever I want. Because you have these kinds of passages that say, you know, uh, you will cast them out. Uh, so it's, it's both and, and, and we want things to be real simple. True. This kind of thing comes up for me, and the first thing that always comes to mind for me is the person who's, you know, maybe dabbled in this throughout his life, but generally was a sinner all of his life, and on his deathbed he's saved. Right. Yeah. Like the thief on the cross. Yeah. Yeah. Does the oil represent the Holy Spirit? Well, it might be in the way you interpret it. I don't always look to interpret things that way. Where the oil represents this, the five virgins represent this, the light represents that. I don't take an allegoric approach necessarily to parables. I try to just keep simple of what is the parable saying in and of itself to us. Because we can go down that road and we could be here all night trying to understand this parable. Because you might say, well, this should represent that. And, and someone else might say, no, it should represent this. And you could go back and forth. And the thing is just learning to take the parable... For its basic meaning, just in the parable. I have another question. You may ask. What do you think of the virgins that didn't give their oil? See, that was a twist for me. That was a twist for you, the virgins that didn't give the oil. If I was one of the virgins, I'd try and share some oil. Because it's it's the believing thing to do. And, And that's kind of definitely something that the Lord takes into account. But I think we also have to remember... One of the things, we can't look to get too far beyond ourselves. Because there's a point where we can give and give and give to people, and instead of helping them, what are we doing? Enabling them. And so, in that sense, the Lord also doesn't want us to give with the understanding that we're going to make ourselves hamstrung. Where we're trying to balance on one foot, and it's impossible for us to be able to be doing the things God's called us to do too. The other thing to remember is that not every detail in, in the parable is designed to have a meaning. Uh, you know, the, the, the fact that the 
that five wise virgins were not willing to, to give oil is basically just background uh, color in, in the picture that that what the Lord wants us to, to focus on is just one or two things and the rest of it is just kind of out there and uh, the idea that we are supposed to be uh, to share the good news and to share uh, with other people it, he teaches that in other places so that's not in focus here I, I was also thinking about the other um, I when, you know with forgiveness is making is shoot I don't know if I'm saying this word right or not but Chuva turning around, going the other direction. I mean, we were talking about that a few minutes ago. You know, when it comes to part of forgiveness is not just saying I'm sorry, it's turning around and going the direction you should be going. Well, you're, you're, I think you're mixing forgiveness and repentance. Yeah. Shuva is repentance. Slichot, uh, I believe that's the Hebrew word, is forgiveness. Thank you, Avraham. Okay, Thank so, you. So let's let's get into the sheep and the goats with the time we have left because this is this has a lot to say to us too, and I think this is an, a great story. Um, there's two songs that always come to mind when I think of the sheep and the goats. One I heard as a young boy growing up in the Catholic Church, a simple tune: "Whatsoever you do to the least of my brothers, that you did unto me," and that's something that always stuck with me. And I didn't understand even at a young boy what that meant. The other song that always comes to mind with the sheep and the goats, and if you ever get a chance to hear it, it's a great artist by the name of Keith Green, who died back in the 70s or 80s, I believe it was. And he had this song called The Sheep and the Goats. And it's very funny. And it's, it also kind of is a very good illustration. At one point in the song, the goats say to the Lord, should we go out to McDonald's and get you something to eat? <laughs> So, I mean, there's, there's a lot that we can look at. But this is not a parable. This is a story. This is a, a, a revelation of what's being given. And it uses some metaphorical language where it compares people to different things. In this case, it's comparing them to the sheep and the goats. And this is, it says that the Son of Man appears on his glorious throne. And the angels are with him. And he's going to judge the nations. And all the nations appear before him. Now, important point here is the Greek word is ethnos. They're running out of the My bad. There's a red uh, pen there. Uh, I didn't want to use the red because the red wasn't coming off. There's also a blue there. Don't worry, we'll get it. Okay. Sorry, I'll try yeah, that. Ethnos. And in Hebrew, does anyone know the word in Hebrew? For nations. Goyim. So this, a lot of what this parable is saying is saying specifically to Gentiles. Or this story. I know I'm referring to it as parable. It's actually a story. Actually a story. And we see here that, um, that first of all, that these, so... Um, let me see, I lost which point. I'm on C. So why, why, do we, why do we separate sheep and goats? Why not just keep them together? Do they get along? No. I don't know. I've never, I've never lived on a farm, so I don't know. Well, why don't you read some of the... Someone read here in the notes. I have some great points. Um, 
I don't have to read them. Let someone else read them. There's five, six great points here about sheep and goats. They have terrible eyesight. They follow the children. They really I'm sorry, that's goats. Now you've gone to goats. Goats are very independent. Yeah, goats will wander from the herd, even to their own peril. They have a mind of their own. And they don't like to shepherd. They don't like to be shepherded. They rebel. Oh, a goat doesn't like to be shepherded? Have you ever... And and I... Just the few... The few things I've learned about goats, they always want to attack your shoes. They love to shoe shoelaces. And the, one of the very first time, one of the very first dates with my wife, she always loved going to a petting zoo. And one of the things that's always there is a goat. But the goats will chew your pants. They will chew your shoelaces. And no matter how much you try to move away from the goat, it kept coming back to Stephanie's shoes. It didn't matter how many times she walked away, it would still try to get at her shoes. That's just how they are. They're very stubborn animals that they have an idea of what they want and they're going to go in that way whether it's right, wrong, or the other and I thought it was interesting in the sheep aspect looking first at the sheep they do, they have, they do have poor eyesight and have you ever thought about then some of the things it says in Psalm 23 to us the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures He leads me beside still waters. And his rod and his staff comfort me. Now, I thought about that in terms of the sheep having this poor eyesight. Having very poor eyesight. And in that sense, they need a place where they feel comfortable. A green pasture would be that place. A green pasture, a very lush and full pasture. They have plenty to eat and they don't have to wander around looking for things to eat. And part of the imagery of the still waters, sheep have to have still waters because if they don't, their their wool will actually get so full of water, they'll fall in the water. They'll fall right into the water. And if somebody doesn't see too well, and I know this from experience, but a gentle hand to let you know I'm right here. Or the rod and the staff in that sense as a touching point for the sheep. Move it or stay there. Come back over here. That's a way of comfort to something they can't see. As well as the shepherd's voice. The shepherd's voice. And Yeshua says, my sheep hear my voice and what? They know me. They know me. They know me. And they will not follow another. And that's part of the picture of the sheep. How important this whole idea of how sheep are very dependent on their shepherd. Very dependent. Whereas the goats are exact opposite as David read to us. Completely. So then we have the picture that we have of Yom Kippur and I'll let you guys read that at home. It's an interesting piece. Because this is a, a very picturesque of Yom Kippur. I got that from Eddie Chumney's book called The Festivals of the Lord. If anyone wants to look that up on Yom Kippur. But uh, basically it talks about how Azazel was chosen with one hand and how the Lord's goat was chosen with the other hand. 
And so you have this, um, you have this different uh, piece in that of knowing how that fits in with how the Lord, in a sense, showed His atonement at the at the temple. Um, so here we have the king, and the king has rendered judgment. Um, he's rendering judgment to each party. Okay. And it's for what they did or they did not do. And that's why I like the Keith Green song. The end of the song he says, And the only difference between the sheep and the goats is what they did and did not do. It's a huge... But yes, it's very simple. And so, in that sense, we have to look... Are we, like, are we going to be part of the sheep? Are we looking to have eternal life? Are we looking to have that inheritance? Entering the Master's joy, like it talks about. Because God, He wants to bless us, and He wants, he wants to give us much, but really the best thing we can get is God. Do you know that's the best treasure you can get from the Lord? Amen. Is the Lord Himself. And to be in His presence, like David said. To have that everlasting joy. And we talked about it a couple weeks at the Torah portion. That Aaron was blessed because the Lord was his portion. The Lord was his inheritance. He didn't need another thing. He had the Lord. And when he had the Lord, he had everything. And that's one of the best things that we can get, just like the sheep here. Now the other part that's really important, that I hope everyone understands, is in verse 40, where he says... For as much as you did it unto the least of my brothers. Now, who are the brothers here? Other believers. That's, that's number two. Israel. Israel. Number one is the Jewish people. Because that's the immediate context. He's saying this to all Jewish believers. He's telling them this. And the least of the brothers is the Jewish people. Jewish people. The Greek word is adelphos. Is that right? Yeah. Adelphos. It means brothers. And achai for my brothers is that my brothers is in Hebrew. So he says, if you do it to the least of my brothers, it's as if you did it to me. And really what this parable, I believe, that's talking about here. Do we bless the Jewish people or do we curse the Jewish people? It fits with uh, the Abrahamic covenant in, in uh, Genesis 12.3. Yes. I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. Let's also read the other scripture that goes along that. Joel. Joel chapter 3, or if you have the Tanakh, it's Joel chapter 4. Joel chapter 3. Verses 1 through 3, or Joel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, depending on which Bible you have. I'm sorry, 1 and 2, not 1 and through 3, 1 and 2. 1 and 2. You need something to drink, Michael? Um, I have my water right here. I'll be okay. fine. I get, the heat seems to always go off, or the air... And so if we need to open the door now, I'm very hot, but I don't know about the rest of you. You want me to open the door? I can. That would be so great. 
Because I seem to get hot in the last mm -hmm. 10, 15 minutes of Bible study. Well, I'm hoping I'm reflecting the Lord if the light's on me. That's really what I want to do. So let's read that, that Joel passage. Verse 1 and 2. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore Judah and Jerusalem from exile, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jerusalem. I will plead to them there on behalf of my people, even my inheritance Israel, whom they scattered among the nations and divided up my land. So Joel's giving another piece of what this picture looks like in Matthew of where God would gather the nations together and begin to hand out judgment. And so it's really important to say that as Gentiles, do we understand our calling to the brothers of Israel? And we Gentiles are also called brothers. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that Yeshua had to be like one of his brothers so that he would look, be able to help those that are suffering. That he'd be that type of kinsman redeemer. That type of Goel, that redeemer who could redeem fully and completely to the uttermost. And that's the picture. Yes, it does talk about the Jewish people. And yes, it does talk about brothers in the Gentile community. But the context here is seeming to, to me, the first and most important thing is, I think it's talking first to the Jewish people. And so the application of this, how do we show compassion? Very simple ways. How we can show the Lord's compassion to both the lost, because ultimately that's the application here. The first application of the first parable was being vigilant and being prepared. But the second application in this parable is how are we hospitable to each other? How do we look to show compassion how do we look to reach others with what God's done in our lives? Because ultimately that has to happen. What God does with you can't stay with you. It has to go out to others around you. So I'd like to read these last two scriptures. Um, Luke 14, verses 12 through 14, and 1 Peter 4, 8. Because they speak of that, that spirit of hospitality that we all need. Luke 14, what? Verses 12 to 14. Can you do those? Yes, that would be great. Okay. Then Yeshua was also saying to the one who invited him, When you host a luncheon or dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise they might invite you in return as your payback. But when you host a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And it continues on. And you will be blessed since they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What do all these four have in common? The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind... They're unfortunate. They're needy. But most important, they can't repay. 
they can't repay. And they're all showing some form of brokenness. And brokenness isn't limited to these four, is it? Anybody can be broken. Absolutely. Anybody can be broken. Anybody can be broken. We could have broken people in this room right now that need a hug. Or that need God's love to be really manifested and magnified on them again. Because we all go through those tough times of, you know, as, as you said, life's hard. And we all go through those spirits at times of dry season where we feel like, am I hearing the Lord? Is the Lord really hearing me? Do I have that confirmation of the Lord's presence in my life? And then 1 Peter 4, 8. Love has to keep going. It has to not just stay with me or you or whoever. It has to keep going on and out. And that's why it's important what we shared about the first parable. Because it's really not about money. We can look at it from that perspective. But it's how we give and how we receive. And as a mishpacha, that has to constantly go on here. And then as we learn to do it here, because here it's a little easier to do. If you step on my toes, I'll say, I forgive you. It's not a big deal. You know, because sometimes we don't always know how to love on each other. And we sometimes hurt people not knowing we're hurting them. Or, but we can practice the one another's first here. And then we're able to go and take that out and love other people outside of here. Whoever they are. As long as the thing is, as long as we reciprocate. We get and then we give back. The way the Lord leads us. Hopefully not by our own cleverness or our own cute ways, but by what the Lord shows us. Because sometimes the Lord can just show us something very basic and simple. So I think these, that's what these stories are really about, is how we show love for each other, but how we show God's love in the midst of each of these situations. Are we prepared? Are we ready? Are we being sober and vigilant, knowing what kind of times... Do we look to encourage each other in the midst of tough times? As well as in the current times. Because current times might be rough for someone right now. And so ultimately, that love that we have for each other has to come forth. That compassion. As the shepherd has shown us compassion. And as the Lord anoints us to be under shepherds to show compassion to others. Because it's not that he does it so that we'll... He does it so that... His ways can reach others. Because remember, we talked about this too in the membership class. Yeshua was very limited. Why was Yeshua limited? He limited himself. It was a choice. But he also limited himself because he saw, I want to minister just to the Jewish people. He made that very simple. But he was only one man walking around men. And he could only reach so many men during his lifetime. Today we can reach people all over the world. If it's through Facebook, or if it's through phone calls or letters, we have the ability to reach so many more people than what Yeshua could reach. That's why he says, the works that you do will be greater works. Greater works. And that's part of Yeshua's heart and vision. So I hope that kind of um, gives us at a good stopping point in Matthew. Um, I hope we resume after the, the Bible study.
But I want to let you guys know it's been a blessing teaching you, and I hope that you've learned things just as I've learned things, and that you come away from this blessed. Would you pray, Maurice, to close us? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and giving us your word that we may know how we should go on. And we ask that the um, insights that we give through my help and whatever other insights you may have given to us throughout the class, that we bear fruit to good works and that we would not take for granted the blessing we have here, that we have the word of God, we can read it. I pray, Lord, we may not take it, um, would not despise it, we would read the word and learn with it, because there may come a day when perhaps it's not so available. So I pray, Lord, for all of us that we would um, recognize the blessings you have bestowed on us having the word of God, being able to hear the word of God, having people who are faithful to, to teach the word of God, and that we, Lord, would um, allow your spirit to work through us and bless others, encourage others, and perform the whatever gifts you've given us to encourage your body and to spread your, um, the good news to those who need it. In Yeshua's name, amen. Amen. Amen.